Hello and welcome to K-Talks. My name is Rastko Petaković. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Francis Werther about a topic I got familiar with maybe more than I would have liked to, and it is cord blood. This episode required unpacking of some personal topics that hit close to home. Luckily, I had an amazing guest. Uh, Dr. Werther actually founded the Parents' Guide to Cord Blood in 1998 in memory of her daughter, Shai. As a mother, as a patient advocate and science researcher, she began compiling resources to help other parents make decisions on storing their children's cord blood. As the body of knowledge around the clinical use of cord blood expanded, her work extended to those issues as well. She is also a co-founder at celltrials.org, which collects and provides the data on clinical trials of advanced cell therapies. I hope you find our conversation informative and useful. Uh, I, I think, you know, your, your personal story, I think, is very compelling but i fully understand if you don't want to uh to uh no, go into that. you know i it has been 23 years since my daughter died and i've i've had to tell this story many times and uh so um you know if you want to uh s- start with uh, how i got involved in in cord blood banking uh it is because my first child had cancer and she spent most of her life in and out of hospitals. She only lived four years and nine months. Um, she had a tumor, a solid tumor, and she had surgery to remove it. It was a 12-hour surgery. Uh, and she also went through a year and a half of chemotherapy. And she had radiation treatment. Uh, it was a lot a lot of therapy for a very small child. Uh, at one point where we were in the hospital, I overheard an oncologist talking to another family about cord blood banking uh, because the mother was pregnant. Um, and that particular family was biracial. And, and the oncologist was saying it would be really important to bank this cord blood. You, you have an unusual combination of genetics. This could be a match for your child. So that planted a seed in my mind. Um, but I never did that for my child. Um, it was only after she had passed away, uh, I immediately became pregnant again. A, a month after she died, I got pregnant. And then for my second child, I remembered that conversation and I thought, I want to privately bank cord blood. I want to make sure I have it just in case. Now, even though I know that childhood cancer does not run in families, it is not hereditary and it is very rare, uh, but I wanted to have every possible protection for my child, which is something that many parents feel, even if they have not been through something terrible. So I looked into it and I discovered it was very hard to, you know, get good information from the banks because they're in the business of selling themselves. And they, they say lots of uh, very vague things that sound good, but they don't give you specific information. So I had to put together a list of, of specific questions and say, okay, how do you do this? How do you do that? What equipment are you using? 
And after I had done all of that, I thought, you know, I could save other parents a lot of work if I put this on the internet as a website so that people would have a reference. And that's how the Parents' Guide started in 1998, uh, which is when my second child was born. And, and that child is now 22 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, it, th th that, that is an, you know, a really, really amazing story. And, uh, uh, you know, for, first of all, I think the, 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 the fact that you're doing it deserves a lot, a lot of credit and, and really, you know, um, I think a lot of families owe you a, a huge depth of gratitude for for putting together uh, such a huge reference. And you know, personally, uh, I I think we should also speak uh, speak about this. But you know, we got in touch because uh, primarily because me and my family were also affected. Not you know not in that way in in quite a different way. Uh, our daughter has uh, autism, and we essentially wanted to take out the, the cord blood that was deposited at, at her birth. Uh, and then, you know, in that process of taking the blood from the bank and trying to transport it to the medical facility where she was about to get uh, treatment, the, the shipment uh, was, uh, you know, fraught with, with so many uh, problems uh, that ultimately the container thawed and together with uh, with her cord blood samples, there was another uh, cord blood sample of another family, uh, incidentally from Serbia, uh, on the same way from the same bank to the same medical facility, the the Duke University. And uh, you know, we were not told that this had happened for for several days. And you know, while it is, um, you know, this is nowhere near. Uh, you know, the, the, the difficult experience that you might have gone through and, and have gone through, uh, you know, for us, this felt as if a part of our child was lost in, in some way because uh, there, was, um, there was such a huge attachment uh, to this. There was a lot of hope put in those containers and there was, uh, you know, a, a lot of things were hanging uh, on our hopes and expectations that this treatment that was showing a lot of promise is going to help. Uh, and, and then we also wanted to do what we thought needed be done in order to correct this sort of a problem that, that we saw uh, existed in the, in the cord blood banking. And that was that uh, the same thing that, that, that you mentioned, um, they all uh, sort of have... Um, you know, a very good marketing uh, uh, setting to to um, to get you into it, but then you know, not all of them are created equal. Not all of them are equally uh, responsible. Not all of them are following all the procedures. Uh, some of them, and that was unfortunately the bank that we deposited the uh, the sample with, uh, was actually at one point they changed the owner, and as a result, they. Uh, you know, their business model collapsed. Their business model was completely reliant on the incoming uh, cord blood samples. And, uh, you know, they were not using the money they were getting in order to storage, uh, you know, to store the cord blood, but rather they were using it to expand into some other ventures. 
And as a result, they ended up not having enough uh, liquid nitrogen, not having enough facilities, not having uh, enough people and the, the, you know, the properly trained people so that they can you know, do all the testing, uh, send the shipments in a way that is uh, you know, prescribed by these standards and make sure that things like uh, the one that happened to us will, will not happen to others. So I think, you know, in, in many ways we come from different angles at this, but I think our, our you know, we, we, our paths converged in a way that I think um, that there is a need for parents to understand the, um, the benefits of cord blood banking, but also to be uh, aware of all the risks and make sure that uh, the, the bank that they that they end up choosing is the right bank for for them. I, I think that uh, uh, both of us share the mission that uh, parents should not be wasting their money when they do this uh, because it is not cheap. Uh, and if you see a bank that claims to be cheap, you should run the other way <laughs> because if it is cheap, they are not doing it right. Uh, so. Yes, we both, you know, with our different projects are, are concerned to, you know, protect parents uh, that, that they should not be just taken advantage of by a, a marketing company that does not really have a commitment to the medical possibility at the end. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe we can start by, uh, you know, by giving some information, some introduction as to what this uh, website, Parents Guide to Cord Blood, is actually giving as sort of resources to parents. And we will leave the link to the website, obviously, for anyone wanting to uh, get uh, more information about this and dig deeper into any of the topics that we're going to discuss. But, you know, from from the outset, what is it and and what sort of references do you do you put in it? So what we try to do uh, at the Parents' Guide to Cord Blood is uh, help parents to understand just a few key, key points. You know, what is cord blood? Why does it have value? Uh, what are the diseases treated? What are my options for storage? Um, and we also try to make it easy for people to find that information because everybody is in a hurry nowadays. Uh, the, one of the things parents do have to understand early on, if they accept that cord blood is valuable and they want to save it, they, they have to decide if they're going to donate it to a public bank or save it privately for their family. Um, because in the vast majority of countries, it is not possible to do both. So you do have to make a choice what path you're going down. Um, and then for those parents who want to save it for their family, we try really hard to make them understand that banks are not all the same, uh, that they should not assume that this is a commodity and you should just buy the cheapest one. Uh, you should look for quality, which is probably going to cost a bit more, but quality matters. Um, and you, we try to provide some key points. Um, we especially emphasize accreditation and experience banks should have an international accreditation and they should have experience in doing this. Uh, the largest banks now have hundreds of thousands of units in storage uh, and they have released dozens for therapy. So 
it's fairly straightforward to check the track record and find a bank that has done this and knows how to do it and you know has testimonials of patients who had treatments. And I'm, I'm not steering people to any one company by saying that in different parts of the world, you can meet these criteria. Right. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, what, one of the things that we learned uh, during our investigation is that um, there are different standards for core blood banking. And, uh, you know, because we were uh, fairly interested in understanding uh, what are these standards saying about uh, how the how the cord blood can be transported from the bank to the medical facility, uh, but also what kind of tests, uh, maternal serology tests, for example, need to be completed before uh, the, the the storing is done, because these were the two issues that we've had uh, experienced with, uh, with with our bank, uh, the the CryoSave uh, now uh, now bankrupt. Uh, one of the things that we actually learned is that, unfortunately, some of these standards uh, had not been, you know, entirely clear, and not even to the standard-setting authorities uh, that that had written down all of these rules. And, um, you know, presumably, well, once we got a bit deeper into that, we realized that some of these standards had been written before the medical protocols and, and the possibilities for treatments uh, worldwide and the possibilities for uh, shipping from one country to another because of the treatment had become available. So, uh, you know, what is your experience? How detailed and how well written are these uh, uh, standards? Is there any room for improvement? And uh, what what are the basic standards that you would recommend any parent look into before they were uh, choosing the bank uh, for for their cold blood? Okay, that's pretty complicated. Um, so internationally, we usually recommend that parents look for a bank that is accredited either by AABB or by FACT. Uh, and these are international standards, uh, so they don't vary that much from country to country. There are also specific countries that have actually strict regulations on stem cell laboratories that cover cord blood banking. Um, for example, in Germany, all laboratories follow uh, good manufacturing processes. Um, in the United Kingdom, they have the uh, Human Tissue, Tissue Authority that regulates all the cord blood banks. And then in Australia, they have the Therapeutic Goods Authority. And, and there are other countries that also have some specific requirements uh, that are very similar to AABB, in fact, because in fact, they were patterned after them. Uh, I think that if parents stick to the accredited banks, that their unit will be banked properly you know, in terms of having the maternal testing done, which is like universally required, everybody requires that you check if the mother has an infectious disease. This should be done by any proper bank. Um, and I think the unit will be safe. When the time comes to ship the unit, that's when things are not uniformly regulated. And that was the problem that you encountered uh, you know, there are courier companies that specialize in getting um, medical samples across borders, but 
especially recently with border closures and the pandemic, the rules keep changing and it's been rather hard for people to ship samples this past year. I mean, that's a special circumstance. Uh, I think the only like simple advice I could give to parents is to go with a company that's experienced because if they have released multiple units for therapy that traveled across borders, then they must be using a good courier, courier service. Right. Yeah, that, 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 makes, uh, that makes sense. Well, an, another question that, that I wanted to discuss is uh, the, the treatment possibilities. Uh, at, you know, about 10 years ago, when the cord lot banking started in, in Serbia and the neighboring countries, the promise of the use of cord blood for treatment was very uh, remote. It, you know, there, there haven't been that many cases where, uh, the, where th there would be a clinical use of cord blood in any, any specific treatment. Uh, so that was that was the situation about 10, 10 years ago, maybe maybe even more. And then, you know, some of these clinical trials show, showed a lot of promise, and some of those clinical trials became even mainstream. But in parallel, there was um, you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of research done trying to uh, extract stem cells from blood, uh, you know, even after birth, of course, from uh, from uh, blood from different other other parts of uh, of the body, uh, and in many cases, some of the uh, physicians uh, across Europe, predominantly, have been advising against taking cord blood as something that is unnecessary, and uh, in essence, saying that you know any sort of value that cord blood has at birth can be replicated further on in life thanks to the progress of science. So is that true or are there any, uh, you know, vital specifics in, uh, in, in your experience that, uh, that only cord blood has and, and cannot be uh, taken further on? Okay, so, so I think that uh, to some extent the physicians who are telling parents not to bank cord blood, I think they are confusing apples and oranges as a saying that we have in English. Um, I think that those physicians are looking at the use of stem cells for transplants, which uh, would happen for a patient with cancer or with a rare metabolic disease. and. Cord blood is not being used as often uh, for transplants in adults as it was five years ago. Um, there are new protocols where you can use like a half-matched donor. It's called a haplo donor. And they now have a protocol for giving drugs to prevent the reaction against that half-match. So a lot of adults are now getting these haplo transplants um, which means that the, the doctors who specialize in transplants are moving away from using cord blood. And for that reason, they're thinking, well, I don't use it in my clinic, therefore you don't need it. But that is, that is a simple viewpoint because they're only looking at their application. Where cord blood has been used a lot in recent years, the, the majority of releases from family banks are for cerebral palsy and autism, which are much more common than these rare genetic disorders or cancers in children, which are very rare. 
um, with cerebral palsy, um, two in 100 children are born with it at a full-term birth. And if you have a premature birth, it's about 10% of children. Um, with autism, it's affecting about one in 60 children. Now, about two thirds of those children are boys, but one in 60 children is, is at the point where everybody knows somebody who has autism. You know, everybody going to school knows somebody in your kid's class or somebody in your neighborhood. This is pretty common. And cord blood has shown promise for both of those conditions. Uh, those conditions have not been treated with haploidentical stem cells or adult stem cells in general. There's very little evidence. The, the strongest evidence has come from cord blood therapy. And that's the main motivation for banking cord blood today, that, that those things could happen and are much more likely than cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I f fully agree that I was actually fishing for, for that answer because I I, I, <laughs> I I think it's very useful to make the distinction between the between the two types of uses. But also what, what I was uh, hinting at is um, the, you know, at the time when we decided to uh, to store uh, cord blood, we had not known that, uh, you know, clinical use for autism and cere cerebral palsy was uh, was available and would be available at, at any point. Uh, we actually thought that uh, this is sort of an in insurance policy, and you know uh, there is only one point uh, in in time where it's possible to extract cord blood from uh, from a person, and that is at birth, and no longer uh you know for for the rest of their lives will will it be possible for for them to extract this and you know we we also were were sort of hinting in ways as, as you know laymen on on this topic uh that you know there might be some immunological or other factors uh in this blood that do not exist or, or, you know, are not known at the time of the research and would only later possibly be revealed to be helpful uh, in, in any sort of clinical, uh, clinical use. And ultimately, you know, even if the cord blood isn't being used for treatment of that particular child, that cord blood can be used to treat other children uh, you know, at at some point. So you know, I think all of those uh, all of those reasons are still uh, pretty much strong. And with uh, with so much wider use of uh, cord blood in in clinical uh, treatments and also trials, you know, uh, you know, I would say for anyone uh, who is able to afford this, because as you said, it's not cheap. Anyone who is able to afford this should afford it for, uh, you know, just to have the peace of their mind. Another um, parent viewpoint that I encounter often, parents think that cord blood is only for little children. And I've had a lot of parents say, well, my child is 10 now. Should I throw it out? Um, but personally, I feel it is always better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So I feel if you're only paying an annual storage fee, why not just hold on to that just in case, because it is pristine. It's a perfect match to your child, and it is back from the moment when they were born. And, and 
I am still storing cord blood from children who are 22 and 20, and I don't have any plans to throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, what, what might be interested, interesting is that uh, recently I've learned that uh, new processes, new technologies are being developed uh, that, that will enable replication of, uh, of uh, you know, stem cells uh, taken, taken at birth. So uh, it is possible, you know, w one of the reasons maybe against or w one of the caveats, I, I should say, uh, for the private cord blood banking that the banks should inform parents about is, as you said, the fact that once the child has uh, reached a certain age or better to say, re you know, certain body mass uh, or, or weight, uh, you know, the 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 application of the cord blood stored at birth is uh, fairly limited because you know it depends on the number of cells extracted from uh, the the umbilical cord at birth and then you know the number of cells divided by a certain number of kilograms is uh, you know the the, the way uh, for use so but you know recently I've learned that that there is technology that can replicate this and in many cases it would be, uh, useful to keep the cord blood even for the rest of uh, of an individual's life, you know, so. Well, the amount of cord blood that is needed, uh, well, the amount of stem cells that is needed, these are the total nucleated cell count in the unit, uh, is considered to be 25 million per kilogram of weight when you are treating cancer, which again is a rare situation. But Absolutely, unless you have a large cord blood unit, your child will get so big that it is not enough for a transplant anymore. Um, also for the treatment of cerebral palsy, if you give the cord blood intravenously, Dr. Kurtzberg's research is showing that bigger dosers produce a better response. So again, you want more cells. But still, a small number of cells is not a reason to say, oh, this is no good. Um, I would give two arguments. Um, first of all, there is some research on, on treating cerebral palsy and autism with what is called an intrathecal injection. And in that case, you inject the cells directly into the spinal cord so they can get to the brain more easily. And that only takes a small dose. You can't put very much into the spinal cord. So there, a small dose is enough. And then finally, there are the new um, protocols that are currently in clinical trials to so-called expand the, the cell count in cord blood. Um, there are several companies that have approaches that are currently in clinical trials for stem cell transplants where they're able to take a small cord blood unit, multiply it, or expand it. They can transplant adults. They have enough cells. So if that technology started being using, used for regenerative medicine, which you know some of the developers are hoping that they will, that will solve any questions about dose, which is why I, I always come back to hold on to it and, and don't throw away that possibility. Right, right. Um, another part that I wanted to discuss is, uh, you know, do you have any... Uh, sort of statistical data or big numbers about how often uh, do parents end up using the, the the stored cord blood? Is there is this information available from from the banks? 
And if it is, do you have any sort of idea how frequently it, it occurs? Uh, it's actually very hard to find out uh, how many parents are using their cord blood because uh, you have to go to banks, you have to first get them to admit what is their inventory and get them to tell the truth, and then you have to get them to admit how many units they've released. Uh, and very few banks will give accurate numbers on, on the two sides of that equation. Uh, I think that um, in the United States, the bank cord blood registry uh, probably has the most accurate numbers. They have a few hundred thousand in storage, and they have released a few hundred for therapy, most of those therapies being cerebral palsy and autism. So, so that gives you an idea that it is not common, but it is not, it is not so small as to be negligible. Mm, right. Um, there are some, some, you mentioned private and public ba banking, and I think it's, it's uh, useful to make uh, a distinction, you know, especially since some of the countries have moved into mandatory uh, public banking and, and essentially put restrictions on the ability of families to have only private, uh, uh, you know, private uh, uh, banks. I think Belgium is one of the examples where uh, the private banks are finding it very difficult to continue operating because of the sort of fair use principle that they apply to all stored, uh, all stored samples. How do you see this interplay between public and private banking? And one of the reasons that I ask this is, uh, you know, there are still countries in the world that don't have uh, public banking options. You know, Serbia, where I come from, is one of those countries. So it is, uh, it is not the possibility to have, um, you know, to, to store in a public bank. And you know what is also one of the one of the troubling issues for for parents deciding uh, about this issue is um, private banks cannot store in Serbia, so it it, it is uh, you know the, the the regime will not allow for private banks to operate in Serbia other than to uh, extract the cells or take them and then uh, transport them into some of the. Uh, you know, uh, facilities that exist in, in other countries, in, in Germany, Poland, Switzerland, and so on. So how do you see this interplay between the, the private and public banks? Mainly, maybe you can start from the U.S. that, that probably has one of the more developed systems in, in this, area, this respect. Well, I think the interplay between public and private banks is constantly shifting. And I think that although the regulations tend to uh, lag behind reality, I think that gradually they are forced to change. Um, in the United States, for example, which is where cord blood banking started, uh, for a long time, the medical community kept trying to urge parents to only donate to public banks and to say that there's no application from private banks. But you know, in recent years, the tide is really turning against that argument. Uh, we see that uh, cord blood is not used as often for transplants, and, and some of the public banks have been forced to shut because they are not economically viable. And at the same time that that's happening, we see more and more of the private units being used for regenerative medicine, especially cerebral palsy and autism. So... 
our country allows both, but economic pressures are making the private banks do better than the public banks. Uh, I think that's happening across Europe, too. And eventually the countries that are outlawing private banking, I think, will have to like wake up, smell the coffee and, and change their regulations. Um, I mean, specifically, it's outlawed in um, Belgium, France and Spain. They were, oh, and also like Italy allows private banking, but you have to send it out of the country. Same thing in Spain. They allow you to send it out of the country. Um, I really think that their regulations are behind the medical reality and, and a shift is overdue. There is a, a new type of banking um, in India that, that I like. It's called community banking, where parents pay up front to bank their cord blood, but the bank is actually a community pool and if anybody in the community needs a transplant, they can get a transplant out of that bank uh, and, and they will not have to pay for it because they paid up front. And I think that this is a good idea for countries that do not have public banks and where people have ethnic types, uh, genetic mixes that are not well covered in the existing public banks. The existing public banks are dominated by white people. And... Um, we're actually running a story um, in our November newsletter that the community bank in India has released its very first transplant within the past few months, and the child is doing well. So I think that that is a, a new option which more countries should look at. Right. Um, if, uh, if you were advising a parent... Uh, you know, how to select the right bank, how to make that decision. First of all, what is the time for uh, a pregnant couple, for example, to make that decision? Uh, at what time during pregnancy should they think about this? Uh, and, and what is the procedure you would advise them to take? Uh, you know, what, what should the discussion between uh, them or what is the discussion a parent should, should, uh, uh, should do before making this decision? Well, ideally, it would be great if parents thought about cord blood banking early in pregnancy, but in practice, very often parents make this decision down to the wire in the third trimester when they're thinking, oh, we really should do that. <laughs> uh, especially when people are having their first child, they feel really overwhelmed by decisions they have to make, even what color to paint the nursery. Uh, and there's a lot of expenses, you know, for a first child. Uh, but people should think about it early on so that they can budget for it. Perhaps they can talk to their to their parents and say, hey, if you're a grandchild, why don't you consider paying for cord blood banking as, as a gift to the baby and, a, and insurance for the whole family? Uh, so I think advanced planning is better if people can do it. Um, of course, I recommend they get information from the Parent's Guide to Cord Blood, as our website is available around the world, and it's been translated into multiple languages. Um, and that will show parents at a glance whether or not there are banks available in their country. And they can click on those banks, get information about their packages right away. They'll have their phone number, their website. They can go contact the bank and, and see if they're running a, a discount right now. 
Um, in the cord blood industry, everybody is always running a temporary discount. And, and when that ends, they run another temporary discount. <laughs> <laughs> so you always have to get the current prices because it, there's, they're never set in stone. <laughs> right, right. And, and I, I also have to uh, add to this and maybe brief off of uh, what you've just said. You know, I, I often get questions because of the... Uh, all the all the problems and difficulties we've had with uh, with storing and transporting of of cord blood, people you know start by asking uh, asking and answering the question, saying things like, "Yeah, we shouldn't do that, right?" And you know, uh, I I always want to stress how important it still is. And and my decision, I think I've I've never regretted the decision to uh, to store the cord blood and and. Would do the same for 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 the next child, so uh, you know I think it's it's really important for for parents to have that conversation early on and to understand, uh, like you said, and I want maybe to expand a little bit on that, that they're buying an insurance policy for the whole family because, you know, they can use the cord blood uh, for uh, for a sibling, they can use. Uh, a cord blood in in many ways, not only for that child uh, from which the the cord blood is is being taken. So I think that's a it's a very important thing to to underline here. Um, hopefully you agree. Um, yeah, I don't want to um, make too strong of a promise that uh, you know your cord blood, your baby's cord blood, is necessarily going to be used for the grandparents because that's still in research. I mean, the the most confident thing is to say you can use it for the child and siblings, mm -hmm. but there have been cases where people have used it for grandparents. Uh, in fact, we have another testimonial we're going to publish in a couple of months in the Czech Republic where uh, a little girl's cord blood was used to help her grandfather who had had a stroke. Mm -hmm. So yes, these things do happen. Um, it really should be an investment for the family. It's an insurance policy. Right. No, can you expand a little bit more on that, that case of the use uh, of cord blood for the, for the grandfather? I think it's... Uh... Well, we haven't published it okay. yet. Uh, um, I was contacted by um, a, a bank... Uh, they are putting together a store. Actually, it's on their website. Mm -hmm. um, so I can send you the link. Right, and we'll, we'll link to that. Um, it's it's on their website in Czech, and they are giving me a translation into English, but I don't have it yet. Uh, um, can, can you maybe, in addition to this, share uh, a testimonial that, that might be, you know, um, another compelling story of why this should be done because I, I'm, I'm sure you, you've heard you know so many stories of, uh, of uh, you know successful use of, of cord blood uh, of transplants or whatever other use. Uh, so can you can you maybe share a story that that you find compelling? Well we've we've published several um, you know children's stories on our website and I I do want to caution that the the stories that end up on the internet are the children who've had really big improvements and and not everybody you know can assume it will work that well um, but I've, I've heard a lot of stories of children who had language problems and um, after receiving cord blood therapy they really improved their both their expressive and receptive language 
Um, and then children with cerebral palsy have gained uh, improved motor control, uh, particularly for walking. But again, I, I, I have to be scientific about this and caution that we get stories about children who made dramatic improvements. And so those stories, you know, are good for social media. Not everybody is going to have a big improvement. Um, the, in the clinical trial, statistically, they have seen that um, actually higher functioning children tend to get a bigger bump from stem cells. Um, which is a bit frustrating because it's the lower functioning children who need it the most. Uh, but the, the trials are, are ongoing to try to understand, you know, what are the parameters of treatment that are most effective and, and who are the patients who benefit the best. Right. And, you know, in those cases and other cases, is there, um, is there a hypothesis or, or a finding uh, explaining why these improvements uh, occur. So what, at what level of action is the cord blood uh, useful to, to treatment of, uh, for example, autism, cerebral palsy, or, or cancers? So what, what is the, the, the mode of, of action, do you know? You know, at this point, I think the mechanism of action is not clearly understood. Um, if you look at the history of, of how regenerative medicine with cord blood got started, it was actually a side effect. Um, Duke University was using uh, cord blood transplants to treat children with metabolic disorders. And they noticed that the IQ of these children was improving after the transplant that they were registering as having a higher IQ than you would expect simply from them being older and able to do more things. And that led them to suspect that the cord blood somehow improved brain function. And so they started doing clinical trials for things like cerebral palsy and encephalopathy at birth. And that was how we got to where we are now with the regenerative medicine uh, movement. But the mechanism of action is still not clearly understood. Right. It reminds me a bit of the early days of penicillin uh, when the scientists came back from vacation and uh, discovered that uh, he'd had some big changes in his lab in the dishes where he was growing fungus. And he learned that, wow, penicillin can, well, this particular fungus can kill bacteria. And then they extracted penicillin from it. And initially, nobody knew what was going on, but they knew it worked. Yeah, right. I, I think it's a it's a great way to uh, to close the conversation. Um, in in many ways, you know, this is uh, this is a jump into the unknown. You know, uh, at at first, at least, the the parents' decision to store uh, cord blood was inspired by, you know, in many many aspects, fear because that was a sort of insurance policy for uh for their children and uh, you know the 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 ways in which it could be used in the future were were unknown i think uh you know right now there are so many uh clinical uses for for cord blood and that's improved tremendously but i think we still need to discover as you said what is the the exact mode of action why uh why it works um, Fran, thank you so much for the conversation. I, I utterly enjoyed it, and, and hopefully the listeners will uh, will learn will have learned something from it, and, and hopefully they will uh, they will make a decision 
uh, you know, that is right for them in this case.